0: Of course, you're a college student, that's about one hour a week preparing, zero hours cleaning up. But <laughs> averaging eight to ten hours a week uh, preparing and cleaning up, that's 30 plus hours a week um, spent um, preparing, cooking, eating, cleaning up. And that doesn't in- include the time you spend wandering around Safeway or Fry's trying to find the food. The average person spends seven years, that means every second of every moment, if you think twenty four hour days, three and sixty five days a week, seven years of your life is spent chewing. <laughs> That's a lot of time chewing. That's why our jaws are so strong. Yeah. <laughs> America spends $110 billion per year on fast food. That means from the Circle K, Big Gulp thing, whatever, to buying. It's about 5% of the average family's income um, goes towards fast food. As a matter of fact, if we were, if we were the, of course we're not, we don't do that, right? But if this church fit in the national average of that, and we each cut that amount, our fast food spending in half, and took that money and pooled it in order to give lunch to the homeless out on the lawn here, we could provide 100 homeless people three lunches a week all year round. Easy. And we'd have money to spare. Should I back us up? Chuck? Keep coming. $110 billion a year. Mealtime. 40% of those in America eat together, and that's about two to three times per week. Forty percent. One generation ago, eighty percent of families ate together and averaged about four to five times together um, per week. So we don't. And out of that forty-seven percent that eat together, about half of those are watching TV while they're eating their meals together. So it's not really the purpose of it. Food and meals, um, God designed, and I think intentionally to be a source of delight. Um, he gave us taste buds. You didn't have to do that. You actually have about 10,000 of them, and they change over every couple weeks. Um, it's a place for connection and community. Um, God created variety. Um, he didn't treat us like dogs. Who My dog gets the same meal twice a day, every day, and he is excited about it. He never <laughs> complains. And they only have like like a third of the taste buds of a human being. So it's like, man, you know, I guess that's why they do that. God did that. Variety. I mean, the variety of food, you think about what God created. Um, Why? Just to enjoy. I mean, it's, you know, just to have variety. And some of us like the same food all the time, but most of you guys are not like that. It's nice to have variety. Although I don't think he um, created squash and Brussels sprouts before the fall. I think they happen later. Decaf coffee definitely came after the fall. But in the beginning, it was good stuff. Food and meals are a source of serving, of, of interacting with each other. It's, it's a, Actually, you'd be able to cook is a giving of a gift. Tonight's daughter cooks. It's a gift. It's, a, it's an art. It's some, a way to bless. In our home, um, my wife does almost all the cooking, um, because I'm lousy at it, but we eat the same thing. But, you know, every every meal cooked, I consider it an act of giving and love. It's because it is. We serve when we create something for somebody else. And it's a constant opportunity for us to give thanks. Food and meals are also a source of pain in our world and our culture as well. It's the first act of rebellion of people had to do with food. Um... It's often an area that deals with issues of control. If you've, if you've had kids, there's one thing you can't do. You cannot make them eat. I mean, if you want to exercise, if you have a little kid and they want to exercise control, that is like the number one area they will go to. Because when we tried the whole deal with make them sit there until they eat something, when they are little, it was like we did that one time and we lost. Um, you know, they will, you, cannot, you cannot make it happen. We eat to mask pain. We overeat. We undereat. Some of our families, the meal times were not times of community. They were times of hurt and pain and don't have good memories for those things. And the very fact that uh, a huge portion of our world and people outside, just outside reach of these walls go hungry every day is an indication that we live in a world that has not dealt well with issues of food um, on behalf of other people. And then there's Jesus. Jesus actually says of himself that he came eating and drinking. There's one writer who says that in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is, in every single passage, either coming, going to a dinner, leaving a dinner, or at a dinner. Lots of eating. Jesus fasts. He told stories about meals. He cooked a meal for the disciples. He told the disciples that they were supposed to eat his body and drink his blood. We'll look at that in four weeks from now. And Jesus used a meal in order to call our attention to the greatest event of history, which was his life given for us. Scripture begins with an invitation to eat. It's eating that brings sin. We have a nation of Israel that's fed a meal every day for 40 years, and guess what they do? They do what happens in our homes all the time. They complained, and they grumbled about it. And it ends with a marriage feast. So there's much to say about food and meals in God's Word. It reveals God's heart. It talks about relationships. It'll explain discipleship. It's a picture of eternity, and it is a constant way of showing sin and need and the frailty of people. So we're doing a little mini four-week series here. We start today. Just so you know, this is not. For those of you who are wondering, it is not a uh, series on nutrition. Um, I am not qualified to teach that. I brought the uh, caramel apple as well, and the and the pop tarts with the frosting. <laughs> I like them cold and chewy. It's not, a, uh, it's not a series about hunger, although we will refer to the issues of hunger and the church's responsibility in most of the, the messages for the next few weeks. There's, there's a huge amount in the scripture about the believer's responsibility towards those who have need, particularly in the area of food. But we're not going to unpackage that here, but there will be some things to say about it. And it's not just surveys so put at ease. It's not a series about eating habits and dieting, because um, I'm no good in those areas either. So we're not talking about those. Rather, we're looking at the scriptures' use and insights that the scripture takes, uses food and and meals. And as we look at what it says, there's great insights into the heart and the character of God. There are insights into the way we're called to relate to each other, and there are insights into who we are to be as a church, and that's what we're trying to get to. So here's where we're going to go for the next four weeks. Today, we're looking at the the key word will be feasting, and the key word about that is celebrating, giving celebration. We're looking at feasting. How many people enjoy a good feast? Come on, everybody enjoys a good feast. Celebration. Next week, we're going to look at the issue of fellowship, the key word is community. There's the whole deal th- you know, of meals and community is huge. Third week we're going to look at fasting, and the key word there is dependence. And then lastly, um, we're looking at—I didn't have an F word, sorry. There's this take and eat, take and eat, and we're looking at participation. And we're particularly be looking at what Jesus spoke about himself to eat his body and drink his blood, and what he did with um, in instituting the Lord's Supper, and is calling to us to participate in his life. So let's pray as we head into this first one, which has to do with feasting. Father, thank you for thank you for goodness. And in, in your creative act, you, um, you actually created things for us to enjoy, to celebrate in. That we can actually sit down with uh, something very physical, like food, and to enjoy it and get something about you. it. Lord, open us up our hearts this morning to, um, even when things are hard in our life, maybe we've had a hard week, that there is a calling to feasting in the goodness and abundance that you call us to. So give us a glimpse of that and enrich our hearts with it and point us to you in all things. In Jesus' name, amen. We're gonna be looking at Nehemiah 8, so you can begin to turn to there if you want comes before the uh, Psalms in that section, looking at the list of feasting. There's a lot in the Scripture about feasting, celebrating in the Word. There's lots of it. As I said, the Bible begins with food, and in Genesis, when the Lord prepares it, He says, "I, I give you every fruiting tree to eat. And he says, and God says it was very good. It's not just good food. This is very good food. The apple tasted better before the fall, by the way, or they weren't supposed to eat that one. Whatever they're supposed to eat, there's, it was good stuff. And God created it and said it's very good. He wanted them to enjoy it. When he sent them into the promised land, he said there was going to be milk and honey there. Not just milk and honey, but it was a land that was flowing with milk and honey. That's where you have it, where it's just coming, where you can't hang on to it anymore. God shows his love and provision in the wilderness by daily preparing food for the people. The greatest moments of Jesus have to do with feasts. We think about the wedding feast where he he creates this great wine. 5,000 people are filled up and so full that they can't eat anymore and they leave food behind. We have the anointing of his feet as he feasts with some other people. And we have the transformation of Zacchaeus that happens in the middle of a feast for his friends. And then we have eternity described as a place of a feast. So it makes sense that God's heart and God's covenants and God's plans and His even his preparation for bringing Jesus to the world would be shown through God's talking about feasting. In scriptures, uh, in the Old Testament, there are seven key feasts of Israel, and you can read about those in Leviticus chapter 23, there are seven of them, the Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of First Fruits, the Feast of Pentecost, um, the Trumpet Feast, that sounds kind of cool, doesn't it, they would actually not work for a day, and they would um, had rest, and they would blow trumpets, we should do that. The Day of Atonement, and then we have the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Booths and the Feast of Tabernacles. So this, this morning, to uh, understand feasting, we are going to look at the Feast of Booths, specifically as it's described in the book of Nehemiah, chapter 8. If you want to read up on this, since it's actually, you know, I haven't looked at the feast for a long time. You start reading about them, it is really exciting stuff. There's Every one of them points to Jesus. Um, They're all fulfilled in Him, or they will be fulfilled in Him. They're all about getting us focused on Him. If you want to read further about the Feast of Booths, you can go to Exodus 23, Deuteronomy 16, Deuteronomy 31, Leviticus 23, which lists all of them, Numbers chapter 29. In the book of Nehemiah, if you remember the story, the uh, nation of Israel, who had, had resisted God in His ways, had actually rejected and not been participating in the feasts at all, um, and God kept trying to get their attention. God exiles them, and they're carried away. Um, the northern kingdoms carried away to uh, Syria. the uh, southern kingdoms carried away over to Babylon. They spend 70 years in exile, a, a kind of wilderness experience like the nation have had before, and they come back from their exile to a city that's in absolute ruins. The city is torn down. Jerusalem's a mess. The temple is gone. The walls are torn down. Nehemiah institutes the beginnings of the rebuilding of the walls. And we get that in the beginning of, um, of the book of uh, Nehemiah as it talks about the building of the walls. In chapter 8, they have finished the walls, and they gather the people together in a, a moment of celebration. to say, God is doing great things, and they're going to read his word um, before them. So you have chapter 8, it says, verse 1, it says, And all the people gathered as one man at the square, which was in front of the water gate, and they asked Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of the Moses, which the Lord had given to Israel. And Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men and women, and everybody could listen and understand on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it before the square, which was in front of the water gate, from early morning till midday. That's what we have to finish at noon. Actually, 11, sorry. In the presence of the men and women and those who could understand, they got the law and they read it. The, uh, the whole, this whole experience that we're going to look at here began with the reading of the law to the people. It's interesting that um, a couple of verses later, I believe it's in verse 6, it says that all the people stood when they read to, to give attention to it and to honor the reading of the law. The reading of the law and his word was an act of submission to God and his purposes and his plans and his ways to the people. As they come back from a time of exile where they have not been faithful, they come and they bring God's word and they they place themselves under his word, um, which is what we're supposed to do every day. It's what we do when we come before the Lord on Sunday morning. um, When we have the word taught, we're to place ourselves under its authority, to let it instruct our lives. And they did that here in this spot. And it continues on in verse 5 and 6, talking about the reading of the law. After that, there is a response. There's actually three responses here um, to the reading of the law as we move down the verses here. It says that in um, verse verse 6, Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen. And they lifted their hands, and they bowed low, and they worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Verse 8 continues that they read from the book of the law and translated to give sense to it first thing that happened is they, they heard the law the people worshipped. tells us that they shouted, they raised hands, they bowed to the gro- ground, they brought worship. Their response to God speaking to their lives was one of worship. The second thing we find out down here in verse 9 says, um, Nehemiah, who was the governor, Ezra the priest and the scribe and the Levites who taught the people, said to the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, verse 9, for all the people were weeping when they heard the reading of the law. Their second response was that they began to weep. As they saw God's standard again, that they had forgotten for so long, and it came freshly into their midst, they realized how distant they had become and how much they had neglected. And rather than just saying, so what? There was an outpouring of repentance and weeping before God over their unfaithfulness in light of the word. There was confession, and we discover here in those verses that God gives mercy. It says here, he says, don't weep. It's just a day of holy to the Lord. It says, verse 10, go, eat of the fat, drink of the sweet, and send portions to him who has nothing prepared for this day is holy to the Lord. Do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed the people. The response was, worship. Weeping, and the response to the weeping was God immediately was speaking to them, saying, "You have mercy. you can stop the weeping. Right? No, we're going to do something different today. Rather than spending a bunch of time weeping and confessing, we are going to eat." Is what he says. We're going to eat. And he says here, "You're going to eat of the fat." Verse ten, they're going to drink of the sweet, and then they're going to share with those that don't have anything of to, uh, to eat eat, to drink, and to share. If you go to verse 12, it says, all the people went away to eat and to drink and to send portions and to celebrate the great festival because they understood the words which had been made known to them. They go to celebrate not just a festival, but what is it called? A great festival. Here they come before the Lord. They're wondering what He's going to do. They have not measured up. And God says, you know what I want you to do? I want you to celebrate. And not just any festival, not any feast. I want you to celebrate with a great feast. And he shows them that, guess what? God had already designed one just for this purpose before that they had forgotten about it. And so they restore what's called the Feast of the Booths. The Feast of Booths, he restores it. And so let's stand as we read about that. I'll begin with verse 13 as they describe this uh, a portion of what the Feast of the Booths was about. On the second day, this is verse 13 of Nehemiah 8, the heads of the fathers' households, of all the people, the priests, the Levites, they were gathered to Ezra the scribe, that they might gain insight into the words of the law. Love that. The people arrived ready to hear. they were saying, Lord, show us something. And they found written in the law how the Lord had commanded through Moses that the sons of Israel should live in booths, that's like a little tent or a shack or a, a tent, during the feast of the seventh month. Verse 15, So they proclaimed and circulated a proclamation in all the cities and in Jerusalem, saying, Go out in the hills, bring olive branches and wild olive branches, myrtle branches, palm branches, and branches of other leafy trees to make booths as is written. So the people went out and they br- brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his roof were in their courts, and in the courts of the house of God, in the square of the water gate, and in the square of the gate of Ephraim. The entire assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths, and they lived in them. The sons of Israel had indeed not done so from the days of Joshua, the son of Nun, to that day, and there was great rejoicing. So we read from the book of the law of God daily, from the first day to the last day, and they celebrated the feast for seven days. That sounds good too, doesn't it? And on the eighth day, there was a psalm assembly according to God's ordinance. You may be seated. So the Feast of the Booths. I can't even say that word. That's a hard one. Feast of the Tabernacles. It was also called the Feast of the Tabernacle. It was called the Feast of the Ingathering. It was often called the Feast of the Lord. As a matter of fact, they frequently just referred to it as the Feast. It was the Feast of Feasts. Of all the ones, this was the one that was really about Feasting. It was, in a sense, it was the nation of Israel's thanksgiving, is what it was. It was uh, held, according to Leviticus uh, chapter 23, five days after the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement is when people come before God with sin, and the sin is covered for them, and they go away under God's mercy. And as they leave that place, five days after that, then God says, now's the time to give thanks, and to celebrate with a feast. In Christ, by the way, because of Christ's work on the cross for us, which has covered us for all eternity, from all of our sin, past, present, and future, for all time, we get to enter into a feast on a daily basis. Every day is what we're called into. After grace comes feasting, we have experienced God's grace. So what did they do? Well, we read what they did. It said here they built these tents or booths. Um, In the Old Testament talked about taking sticks and things. They didn't have very many leafy things. Here they took the ones that had the leaves on them, just kind of this green and celebration. They took olive branches, myrtle branches, palm leaves. Old Testament tells us earlier that they took sticks, and they brought them, and they built these little tents or shacks. I mean, how many of these kids ever built forts? forts all right that's it's great to have a son you still get to build forts it's really cool they built these things they would actually build them on top of their houses um they would build them in their old courts They says they built them even in the courts of where the temple might be um all over the town in the old testament it was just the men who had to live in them the women and children got to stay in the house um it appears that here in this section everybody goes out there everybody wants to be a part of this and so everybody goes in these little tents, and people even do these today. They built these little, long, skinny things. They'll sometimes uh, decorate them with branches. They'll throw uh, blankets over them, whatever it is. Um, and they go inside and live inside these these booths for one week. Um, the, the other passage in the Old Testament tells us that they were to bring in some of the fruits of their harvest at the time. So they would build the booth, and they, they wouldn't sit in there and fast. Rather, they would build it, they'd bring the best of their food from the harvest, and they would hang it inside these tents or tabernacles. And so you could sit around in, the, in your cool fort and eat the whole time. Just pick the stuff off the inside and eat. And you can invite somebody over to your place because you got you know, got this stuff or whatever it is. And people would bring their favorite things in. They would eat them and enjoy. Other passages out of the Old Testament that I had mentioned before that talk about the Feast of Booths um, reveals that there was a series of daily sacrifices every day for the seven days. They started with a certain number of and it decreased in amount each each time as they walked through them, doing these um, these great sacrifices. The people would uh, walk around their tents. Um, as they'd get a bunch of them together, and they would do. Guess what they would do? They would wave palm branches. We see that in the New Testament. The people would wave palm branches, and guess what they shouted? Hosanna! They would shout, "God saves!" They'd shout "Hosanna!" as they waved these palm branches. Um, it actually tells that they would hold a citrus in one hand, which was a symbol of God's goodness and grace and his abundance and the delight that we have in God as they held the citrus in their one hand and they would wave their branches and they would shout Hosanna as they walked round and round, and they do that um, here as well. And lastly, there was a, uh, an act where the priests would take um, water, bowls of water from the pool, and sometimes they would mix it with wine and they would pour it out on the altar. And the water would run down as a symbol of calling for God to bring rain and abundance, but it was a symbol of God giving life to them. So the feast of booths was the kind of feast that everyone looked forward to. Was first to get to camp outside, you know. That was uh, I'm sure the nation of Israel in the wilderness thing like that. But after that was a really cool thing, and they would they was it was it was eating and celebrating the best of stuff. They were shouting, um, all the good things that we would look forward to were present. In this feast of the booths that they were to do, there's three focus points as far as what is it about, what does it mean. There's actually three aspects to it that show up over the course of passages um, here, and they all come through as they celebrated here in Nehemiah. The first one was a remembrance that they had been in the wilderness, that they had been people that were under God's discipline, and they were no longer there anymore. Um, that recalls God's protection of them. Um, his preservation of them and His deliverance from Egypt. Even while they were in, in the wilderness, um, separated, there was a reminder that God was good, giving them good things over and over and over again. And they would celebrate God's protection, His deliverance, and His preservation. Of them. the second part was that the focus point was had to do with harvesting um, and the remembrance that God is one who provides everything We need. As a matter of fact, he usually provides more than we need. It comes in abundance, and the harvest was a time to express joy. It wasn't a time to fast. It was a time to express joy and abundance. And the third focus point of the Feast of Booths had to do with the tabernacle. As you remember, that in the wilderness, where was God? He was in a tabernacle in their midst. God's very presence in the uh, the cloud and the fire, there was this daily reminder that God was in the midst of the people. He was not far away. He was near. In the same way, the Feast of Booths was supposed to be a reminder of God's presence in them, that God is with us. And with all these things in mind, God tells them here in this passage, as they celebrate, there's an invitation to say, come and eat and feast and enjoy every minute of it. The reason I ask everybody to bring their favorite food has nothing to do with what's nutritious. There's a few odd people here who brought some nutritious things up here. But there are some times when you don't care about nutrition, you just there's certain things that when you put them in your mouth, they just have a remarkable effect. They just taste good. Guess who created us to be that way? God did. And it gets twisted in our world and stuff, and we can let those things get messed up, but God gave feasts and these foods to enjoy because they say something about him and his provision for us. So before we bring some conclusion here, I want to read some invitations that God has in Scripture to invitations to feasting. Remember that the Feast of Booths was an entire week of eating, and of celebrating—that's all they did. Not just for one Thanksgiving day; they did it for a week. And God wove this idea of feasting and celebrating into the very fabric of their culture and their activities and their life, the fabric of His people. So read, read some. Let me just just listen to these as I read through these, um, these uh, callings to feasting. This first one is not necessarily calling to eat, but it's a calling to enjoy God. Later on in Israel's history, they would often read Psalm 27 during the Feast of the Booths. Very familiar Psalm, and these, these uh, verses are in there. Psalm 27, verse 4. One thing I have asked from the Lord, and that I will seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord, to meditate in his temple, for in the day of trouble he will conceal me in his tabernacle, his tent. And in the secret place of his tent, he will hide me, and lift me up on a rock. I love that—that that this this calling, to enjoy the beauty and the goodness of the Lord, which in this case is feasting. Zechariah chapter 14. I've read this one many times. It's one of my favorite chapters. It talks about um, the eternal celebration we have with God, but it also talks about what we as believers have today, because Christ has come and has won over sin and death, so his kingdom is in our midst today. Verse 9 says, The Lord will be the king over all the earth, and in that day the Lord will be the only one, and his name will be the only one. And it says here, in verse 16 of Zechariah 14, It will come about that any who are left of all the nations that went against Jerusalem will go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and they will celebrate the Feast of Booths. Verse 20, In that day, This says, while the people are eating and celebrating and feasting, there will be inscribed on the bells of the horses, holy to the Lord, the cooking pots in the house of the Lord will be like bowls before the altar. Every cooking pot, which is for what, by the way? Cooking in Jerusalem and Judah will be holy to the Lord of hosts, and everyone in sacrifice will come and take of them and boil of them. And there will be no longer a Canaanite in the house of the Lord of hosts in that day. A day of holy cooking. The book of Isaiah. Read from chapter 25, verse 6. It says, In that day of the Lord of hosts, he will prepare a lavish banquet for all peoples on this mountain. A banquet of aged wine choice pieces with marrow and refined aged wine and this is interesting he says on this mountain he will swallow up the covering which is over the people and even the veil which is stretched over the nations as god takes that away from us the veil that separates us from god the sin in our life he takes it away and then what's his invitation his invitation says god says i am cooking a banquet and i'm welcoming you to come and feast and enjoy the banquet which i have prepared And then a more familiar passage, Isaiah 55. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. You who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why do you spend money for what is not bread, and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me. Eat what is good. Delight yourself in abundance. Incline your ear and come to me and listen in order that you may live. And then there's a great passage, John chapter 7. Um, the book of John, uh, in John chapter 7, the Feast of Booths is happening in Jerusalem, and Jesus arrives in Jerusalem. There's all sorts of questions and challenges to who he is and what he's come to do. And In the middle of the Feast of Booths, you remember what happens at the very end? The, we've got the people waving the palm branches and shouting Hosanna, which we see when Jesus rides into Jerusalem later on. It's pointing to him, But remember the guy, they pour out this water on the altar. And in the middle of the Feast of Booths, when Jesus is speaking in John chapter 7, in verse 37, Jesus stands up. And he stands up and shouts out to the people, If anyone is thirsty, come to me and drink. The water poured out on the altar is a symbol of Jesus says, I am the water. I'm the one who gives life. I'm the one who comes to feast on me. Because I'm the one who brings abundance and goodness into your life. As a matter of fact, the uh, Pharisees want to get rid of Jesus at that point because of the calling for people to come to him. God's call to feasting is a call to enjoy and to embrace him, to embrace his provision, to embrace his presence, to embrace his goodness. And just as we see in this Feast of Booths where God calls people to remember his goodness and to enjoy and to eat of it. There's an invitation to us all through scriptures um, to enjoy that same feast and then to share it as well. I like this idea that as people were enjoying abundance, God says, don't forget those who don't have it. And part of their feasting was to take a portion of what they have and give it to someone who didn't have. It's interesting that God chooses eating to show us something about his goodness. Um, what do you think that is? Just because we like it? There's lots of reasons for it. There's some, there's, there's, food is like nothing else. It's, it's immediate. It's every day. Every day. It takes us a day or less to forget, doesn't it? Um... I mean, you know, we we get things and we just turn around and we forget. Um, And God instituted this idea that he said, you know what? They eat a lot. They're eating all the time. Um, And whether it's like me where you have a cup of coffee about ten times a day, that's your, your meal until dinner time. Every cup of coffee is a delight, you know, so I can still experience it. You know, three times a day, four times a day, snacks in between, the Ghirardelli ice cream late at night, you know. Whatever it is, it is daily and it is regular. And God did that for a reason because we forget. And he wants us to associate his goodness and his provision and his presence and his invitation, even in the midst of, as we were this morning, that we struggle sometimes and we, we've, we've, we've fallen aside. And God says, my, my grace has been there always all along. My constant invitation is to enjoy my abundance and the feast that I give to you. And so God institutes it with, connects it with eating so that we won't forget. The idea of sitting down at a meal and saying grace um, it is a great habit. It's a habit if we use it to actually sit down every time I take a snack or a meal or a drink and be able to genuinely become before God and remember the things that he pours out on us, we'd be less likely to forget. His life was given for us on the cross. And the work of the cross then becomes a doorway for us to a banquet hall, to a feast full of blessings, and the invitation is, don't just stand there and look at it thinking, wow, that was great. The invitation is Step in and enjoy the feast. Don't just look at it. To be able to enjoy it, God's invitations, enjoy what I've given. Remember it. Partake of it. Cameron, the, the worship team can come up and kind of get themselves situated. We've got a few things to cover still, but you guys can make your way up here. We have communion up front here. Um, we partake in it as a whole church, as we did um, New Year's Eve. Um, There's a communion in the back counter as well. Every Sunday, those elements are here to partake of. For If you're a believer, you can partake of them anytime while we're worshiping. I invite you to do that today as well. Communion is called what? In some other traditions of mine being one of them, it's called the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper, it's a meal, was given at a meal. Um, God associated his greatest act, his act of forgiveness, as his work on the cross for us associated with a meal. And as we sing and worship, it's appropriate that we can partake of that. Remember that it's his work that brought it for us. By the way, the food up front, um, not everybody brought it, but um, for those who want, take it home. So if it's left here, I will eat it all. So um, if you brought it, let me encourage you perhaps just to leave yours and not take anything home. Remember that God gives. He loves to give. If you didn't bring any today, steal something. Take it. And when you take it, remember that God gives to us. We're, we're empty-handed. We have nothing. And God says, take it. Take the best stuff. Take the Pop-Tarts. You know, take something there. Take it. <laughs> the only deal is if at five minutes after the service is over, anything that's up here is fair game to anybody, okay? Even if you come up here and decide you want to take communion, if you're one of those who want to take communion this morning, um, take something with you. Remember that as we partake, we it's a good thing. What God has poured out on us is beyond comprehension. Our daily activity is to, to delve deeper into the, the goodness that God pours on us. Every bite we take of food is a reminder of what God has brought into our life. So each time, here's my assignment as we close. Each time you... Sit or stand, perhaps while you're standing before the stove and cooking. Wherever it might be, all those multiple opportunities, those are all opportunities to be drawn fresh to the goodness of God. Every single one of those times are an opportunity. Opportunity to celebrate and to give thanks. Let me give you four things. One, number one, as you do so and eat, um, reflect. Reflect on God's goodness to you. No matter how hard things are. God's goodness is there. Look for it. Reflect on his goodness. And don't just say, good food, great meat, good God, let's eat. Give thanks. That, that deep, abiding, genuine, overflowing thanksgiving that flows out going, I, I see it. I see what God's done. Thank you, God, for it. Reflect on it. Number two, rejoice. It is okay to say, I love what I got from God. I love it. His goodness and his mercy are everlasting. I can, I can shout about that. Rejoice. His blessings are there. He's called us to be worshipers for what he's given to us. Third, return it. Um, Whether it's through serving somebody, giving somebody some food, showing hospitality by inviting somebody over, part of our response to it is to to return it to somebody else, always. And then lastly, um, as we've said, relish in it. Not relish like eating. I don't like relish. But relish in what you have. God wants you to delight in him. And some of us have a really hard time doing that. I struggle with that, just to really delight in what we have in him. God wants us to enjoy it. He wants us to give thanks for it. He wants us to relish in the goodness that he has. So as we worship this morning, reflect on those things. Those who want to, you're welcome to participate and take communion as you would like this morning. Worship in your seats. Um, Give thanks. Let's pray. Father, thank you for creating us the way you did. We live in a broken world, and even in this area of food, there is so much brokenness and want. And yet, Lord, it's something you've created as a a picture and a doorway to something great that you've already given to us in Jesus on the cross. As we have been poured out with blessings, as your spirit has taken up residence in our life, that you have called us to a feast that's not just something way in the future, but it is right here in your kingdom today for us to enjoy. Help us to remember your goodness and your abiding love that's enduring and poured out in our life each day. And may our voices reflect Our joy in that, in Jesus' name, amen.